Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. I want to say a couple of things this morning. Bob was made by God, and Bob was made with eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. You know what, you know what God says to Moses when he says, I don't have the ability to talk. And God says, who makes the eyes that see and the eyes that don't see, the ears that hear? God made Bob to have cerebral palsy. And so we can have faith for that vulnerability and suffering of Bob. And I have said before, all of you should read his autobiography. Um, it's, it's wonderful. We have more difficulty dealing with the suffering of Bob that comes because of actions of sinners. If you receive my meaning. And we tend to get angry about that and view that as beyond God's control and something that we have to take in hand. All right, but that's not how it works. In this life, we will have many troubles. And the fact is, in this life, there are hierarchies, there are gradations of authority, there are people who are leaders who are not, who are evil, right? We all know this. And I've been thinking a lot about the issue recently of how much of Scripture, and specifically the Psalms, this is the reason I try to get people to listen to my soul among lions, Everybody thinks that, I, that I, I'm in love with the band, and I am, but that's not why I try to get anybody to listen to it. I try to get them to listen to it because there ain't nobody making music today that gives as much attention to the judgments of God as to his mercies. There's nobody. And you don't begin to understand God until you know that all his perfections live in perfect harmony with each other. And that God is not going to be in your debt when you stand before him at the judgment seat. And my soul among lions gives you a perfect dose of God's hard and soft, but I know that's such a pathetic way of putting it, of God's justice and mercy, let's put it that way. And so you find all through the Psalms, all these Psalms that are just like, yikes, you know, you know, you know, my favorite to bring up is Psalm 139, where it's talking about, you know, he formed me in my mother's womb, and so fearfully and wonderfully made, and just every day, you know what I'm saying, and it's just like, oh yeah, buddy. We're all right there, you know. And then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, at the end of that song, is, don't I hate the wicked? Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They, And I'm like, oh, please, where did that come from? And so you find yourself listening to my soul among lions, and the theme is so constant of the hatred of the wicked for the righteous. You realize this. If you've ever listened to my soul among lions, that's the reason to listen. And so we have this sort of ethereal, hypothetical notion about how, yes, the wicked hated David. But if you stop and think about it, when? 
And you say, well, all those psalms were written when he was in the wilderness running from Saul. No. How about when he was running from his son? Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. (laughs) And even if you're able to think about how David, King David, was hated in his lifetime, none of us are willing to think that this means that we should take comfort from those psalms for those who hate us. Are you with me? Because we don't think we're worthy of being hated. And so we don't take any comfort from the Psalms crying out to God for his justice against those who are seeking to slay us, right? Are you with me? Are you with me? And we think that doesn't happen today. Are you with me? Come on, wake up and smell the roses. It happens today. It has always happened. All through human history, men and women have been bloodthirsty. All through history, men and women have been killing their unborn children. All through Judea and Israel, the people of God, they put their children in the mouth of Moloch. The kings of God's people put their children in the mouth of their demon gods. Wake up. And so we have enemies, and there is bloodshed today. And we cry out to God, And we trust him with cerebral palsy. Y'all with me there, right? We're all all right on board there. We trust him with the removal of food and water and dosages of fentanyl. Are y'all with me? God has never told us that we will live without tyranny. God is God. And God uses cerebral palsy and he uses bloodshed to accomplish his purposes with us. And we rejoice that we have been called by his name. And then we take a good look at ourselves and we realize that we are, we are bloodthirsty. We, all right. And we pray that God will open the eyes and hearts of those who torment those we love. But I'm telling you, we must see this world as it really is. Please don't give me a Wesleyan, evangelical, Wheaton, God who is no God. Don't talk to me about how wonderful life is. I mean, it is often wonderful. You know, I got up this morning and for once in my life, I was happy. (laughs) And for once in my life, when Mary Lee came downstairs later, I was happy to see her. It was a very rare thing for her. 
So please, brothers and sisters, let's have faith for our suffering. Let's have faith for the suffering of our loved ones. After all, they won't win. And if that's not a precious truth to you, I don't know that you're a Christian. Because it sure as hell looks like they're winning. (laughs) I think that's an okay use of the word hell, don't you, Pastor? (laughs) I think it's okay. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, have faith. But, you know, it is interesting how um, it has been very, very interesting and very difficult for me, actually, not so much with Bob. Do you know where I've had difficulty? I've had real difficulty seeing the suffering of his black lab, Lucas. And that makes me cry to see Lucas have to be the grease in this evil mechanism. It just slays me. And there are the men, Nate, you know, Daniel. And they've been doing the yeoman's work this week. And they have suffered. And so be especially tender to the Bobites right now. Would you stand up and come here, please? Come here, Joseph, come here. And would you pray for Lucas and for the other men? Hold it to the side. Just hold it to the side. Hold it right there. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, pray for Lucas. Pray for the Bobites. Um, Pray that they can find comfort in you during this time, Lord, that you can um, help them grieve, Bob, whatever his time is. Um, and thank you so much for the look at Bob's house and all the lives he has touched in his lifetime. So pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm, I'm back. Our sermon this morning is uh, from Matthew chapter 2. And uh, it was already preached last week by Stephen. Remember how he kept saying over and over again, now I'm not preaching on the Magi. Remember that? He just kept saying over and over and over. So this morning I was laughing at him and I said, no, you didn't preach on the Magi, except every time you said, I'm not preaching on the Magi, and that was your whole sermon, I'm not preaching. I said in the first service, uh, everything I said about the Magi, I kept saying, well, Stephen already said this to you last week, you know. And, and then I said, and then this morning he did something he'd never done before, which is I had pages from a commentary in the middle of my desk with block print, underlined, I think, I think it was actually underlined, this is very good, of Ryle on the Magi. I mean, you talk about a guy who is aching to preach on the Magi. 
Well, there was another pastor here in the first service, and I knew that that pastor was probably being tempted to think that I was expressing my displeasure with Pastor Baker, which I wasn't. It's just that I'm from Pennsylvania and I'm aggressive, you know. I think if a guy exposes himself to vulnerability that much, that I should take advantage of it, you know. (laughs) And you won't understand me unless you've known Joyce Huck and Lauren Pickett. Well, anyhow, so for that man's benefit, without looking at him, I said, don't worry, it's okay with Stephen. I think he's cute. I know you've never thought that about Stephen. It was very encouraging, as always, to be able to join you in worship last week and to sit under Stephen's preaching. What a joy. What a joy. What a superfluity of wealth of preaching God has given us. It's just mind-boggling. Pick one, anyone, and God will use it with us, and it's such an encouragement to me. So this week, our sermon text is this from Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. This is God's word, and it is forever true. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. He's a, he's a snake. There, that boy. He's a snake. Go and search carefully for him. For the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I two may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. 
Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth, our Heavenly Father, and the thoughts on all of our minds and hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of the sermons around Easter, I mean Easter, Christmas, most of them come from Luke, right? Luke is the physician. Luke is sensitive to what's going on at home with the women and the children. And so we have these beautiful pictures of Joseph and Mary together, of the babes, of of, uh, both uh, Elizabeth and and Zechariah and also uh, Mary. And Matthew is the writer of Gospels to the Jews. And so Matthew is kind of like uh, Daniel Froman and Bob. You know, he's kind of uh, pushy and direct and objective. John is like very intense and very spiritual, right? He's the apostle of love. Matthew's kind of boom, 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 boom. Well, Matthew comes and records the presence of the Magi. And Matthew's the one in the first chapter who says that Jesus was, quote, the rightful heir to David's throne, unquote. So in chapter one, he shows with the genealogy and then with the statement that Jesus was the descendant and the rightful heir to the kingship, okay? Well, now he's going into chapter two and right away he trots out uncircumcised Gentiles as witnesses to this fact, all right? Because they come to Jerusalem and they're asking, Where is this little one who has been born king of the Jews? All right. There is a certain kind of biblical criticism by scholars called redaction criticism. And what it seeks to do is it seeks to look at the needs of the writers of Scripture and of the church at their time, okay, and explain the origin of their record of history based upon what, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80 years later, the church needed them to write about the history. Are you with me? Okay? Very faithless way of approaching words inspired by God. And they won't hesitate to tell you that this was manufactured by so-and-so in order to do such-and-such in the church of his time. So there have always been scholars who are skeptical that the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, right? (laughs) It's nothing new. But the interesting thing is here, here we have at the center of the story as the protagonists, as the heroes, who? Scholars. Not just scholars, but scholars who have not been circumcised. Scholars who are Gentiles. Scholars who are dirty goyim. Very interesting. 
Now, where did they come from? We don't know. The east. Where is the east? Well, I guess it could be China. Uh, most people think it was probably in the area of Iran. And they're called magi, or you can also say wise men. And they obviously studied the stars, right? Um, how many of them were there? Well, Stephen already said this, but... <laughs> oh, I love our pastors. Oh, I love them. And I tease people I love. I don't know if I've teased you. If I haven't, it's not a good look. <laughs> so anyhow, we don't know how many there were. You know, it just says that there were three categories of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, but I mean, honestly, aren't there often multiple sweaters given at Christmas by multiple people, you know? And so we have no idea. He was right, Stephen, that is, in saying that there was probably a whole group of them traveling together because you're not going to go through the wilderness where there were all kinds of robbers and uh, assassins lining the road, and those guys wouldn't have stood a chance if there was just three of them. You know, they're carrying the wealth of their nation. What we should think about these men is that they are an entourage of the elite of their nation. And they particularly because of their scholarship, and their scholarship is focused on the stars. And they are not Jews. And their study of the stars, somehow, we have no idea how. I mean, you know, you, you, you'll have Christian astronomers writing papers on this being a supernova, or this, that, and the other thing. And Rita actually one time at, at my request wrote up a thing about what she thought it was, but you don't know. Nobody knows. I was interested that some of the things that have been written by astronomers who are Christian place it at 5 and 6 and 7 BC. Well, you know, here a year, there a year, everywhere a year, year. You know what I'm saying? And so what we don't need to know is the method that they came to the conclusion that this star was indicating the birth of the promised Messiah. We don't need to know why. What we do need, need to know is that God works among us and that God miraculously brought them to Mary holding Jesus. And part of the miracle was the fact that that bringing was accomplished partly through this snake of a man, Herod. And not just Herod, but what? Well, the Jewish religious leaders who, if there was ever a hopeless case, it was the pastors and elders of the Presbyterian churches at the time. Wake up, people. Now, why would I say that? Well, because the entire story is an incredible compare and contrast the Jews, God's people, and the Gentiles, the Magi. That's the whole story. What a contrast! 
Did any Jews go with them to see the Messiah? No. They were filled with head knowledge. They knew precisely where the Messiah would be born. They sent them to the place that he would be born. And they didn't lift a finger to go. And they certainly didn't worship. You remember that Stephen has been giving me good guidance about how to preach this morning, right? You all, you all know this. So from Ryle, let me read a sentence. This is what he left me on my desk. Oh, so Ryle says this, how often, how often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them the most. So this is a sermon for our children in this sanctuary this morning. Isn't it amazing that God revealed himself to truck drivers at the truck stop and sent them to worship Jesus in the manger. Isn't it amazing? Why truck drivers? Well, they're not, you say, they were shepherds. I say, okay, shepherds, truck drivers, same difference. Isn't it amazing that the next people you see worshiping him (laughs) are going, are uncircumcised Gentiles, Not only that, but scholars, and you know what I think of scholars. Isn't it amazing that God God shoves our nose in the fact that none of God's people would join them in their worship? None. None. What lesson do you think God gives us through this? Well, if we have eyes to see, we know what the lesson is because I watch and love our children, all of them, not just my grandchildren. They're my lambs. And they're more my lambs than their parents' lambs. Because I represent God to them. And I preach to them in God's behalf. And I often see the damage their parents do to them. I tell Phil Moyer that as our pastor to our youth, he's actually not a pastor to youth at all. What he is is a pastor to their parents. We pastors and elders and older women of the church are jealous for the souls of your children. And not just those of you who have the children in your home, we're jealous for the souls of mothers and fathers here whose children have long been outside of their homes. 
And we would be foolish to read this account and not learn from it that there are many who have all the means of grace, who have grown up knowing the scriptures well enough to be able to direct the wise men from the east precisely, precisely to Jesus, who would not take a step to worship him let alone bring him their wealth. And so those of you today who are children, who have been raised memorizing Luke 2, memorizing Isaiah 53, who have been instructed in devotions in your home, who have been known by name in your church, Those of you who have seen your mother and father confess their sins and who refuse, absolutely refuse to do it yourself. Remember that God is in the business of making the last first and the first last. When I think about that, you would understand me saying that I always think about whether or not Mary Lee is going to be my boss man up in heaven. I wonder whether men are going to be under the thumb of women instead of... I think Mick Jagger's up for a rude awakening. Remember, he's the guy that sang, Under my thumb. And so if you this morning are a child of the covenant, if you have been baptized, if you have been welcomed to the Lord's table, if your father fears God, if your mother submits to your father, do not for one second think that that means that you can be presumptuous. And you say, Pastor Bailey, what does the word presumptuous mean? And I say, go home and look it up in a dictionary. Memorize the definition. Do not be glib about who your mama and dad are. Oh, no. Because God has given them to you as your parents does not for one second mean that you would have been in Jerusalem going to worship at the feet of Jesus. I watch you. I see you. And I always give you kisses and hugs, tell you you're beautiful, who you are. Well, I give you hugs and kisses and tell you you're beautiful. I got Joe Cocker playing in my brain. You are so beautiful to me. Can't you see? <laughs> You're everything I hope for. But you know something? Instruction and rebuke and admonition and prayers and baptism and the Lord's Supper are not sufficient 
There is no replacement for you humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. And your mommy can't do that for you. I cannot preach on the wise men without thinking of Rita Cuffey. Our dear sister who nursed many of us in the word of God during her lifetime, including her husband and her pastors. Rita Cuffey, who uh, became the secretary to David Ferris at Evangelical Community Church, and I have it from other people that she would sit in her office doing her work and David would be in his office counseling with his door open, if you hear me. And David would say, hey, Rita, where is it in Scripture that it says Jesus wept? And she would say, well, David... I, I think, think, no, 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 but that's what she, David, I think that's in uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 17, and it's on the right side of the right page. And so, so you know this. How do you know this? You did know it. Yeah. She not only had the Bible basically memorized, but she also was... Um, what's it called? Spatial. You know, she knew where on the page and which page, you know. And David had this concordance that was better than a Bible program. You know, Rita, where does it say that he, he was no more, you know, about Enoch, you know. Well, Dave, I think, <laughs> and of course she knew, she wasn't thinking, so, so here's Rita's story. You remember she was an astronomer. She was a wise man. She had gone to Radcliffe and then to Harvard because Harvard took women as grad students and Radcliffe had women as undergrads at that time. And when she got her degree, she went to Harvard and she enrolled in the PhD program for astronomy. And Rita was very bright. She had a good fellowship, right? Well, where had she gone to school? Well, she was from Boston. Where in Boston? Well, the near north side. What is the near north side like? Well, it's nasty. It's Italian, and it's aggressive. I once tried to park on the near north side, and I just got, got my you-know-what handed to me. You know? The only other time that's happened is when I wanted to go down to the beach in La Jolla, and I left my... Volkswagen up on the road and when I came back it was written all over with obscenities telling me to go home because I had an out-of-state license plate. So that's La Jolla and this is the near north side of Boston. Her maiden name was Parabashi. All right. And Rita had grown up in the Roman Catholic Church and as she would tell me the story she would say, but I did not meet, I did not I could not find God in the Roman Catholic Church. And she wasn't being sectarian. 
She was just saying, you know, it was a mercantilist method of working the sacraments to keep the church alive, right? And so she began to study astronomy. Why? She studied astronomy so that she would find God. That's why she studied astronomy. Well, when she met Jimmy, it was all over. She decided that she would stay home and not go out at night anymore to the uh, observatory because it was cold and at home she could be with Jimmy. Capital W. She was more explicit in describing it. So she resigned her fellowship, they got married, and they moved out to Bloomington. She was still seeking God. And when they moved to Bloomington, Jimmy decided he was going to build a house. But she, that did not worry her. What worried her was that they were way on the east side. And the name of the state was Indian. Uh. And she was petrified that in Indiana, that there would be an attack from Indians way out on the east side of Bloomington. You remember the road that dead ends that Bob Kapowitz lives on, that dead ends into the church across the street is called what? East Side Drive. <laughs> yeah. And so Rita was fine with Jimmy building her house. Well, that was a scary thing. Trust me. But she was petrified of the Indians. So there she was living in that house and she was still looking for God. And do you know what God did? God burned down the Presbyterian church. It burned down. And because it burned down, the pastor had to find another place to build. I don't know how it worked, but that's the truth. And guess where they built? They built right across the street from Jimmy and Rita. Well, Rita would go over there, and she began talking to the pastor. And that man led her to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And from that point on, this little woman, it sounds so funny to call Rita Cuffey a little woman, but this little woman began to be a nursing mother to every Christian in the city of Bloomington. She had not had the privilege of growing up in a church where the word of God was preached. All of New England, and especially Boston, are hard pagan places. They're even worse than the Pacific Northwest. And this woman was a scholar. You know where she went to high school? She went to high school at Boston Latin School. You know what Boston Latin School is? Boston Latin School is still, I'm sure, the best public school in the country. And she would describe to me how all the studies were the classics. It was like St. John's University for high school students, you know? And 
She'd walk down the halls at Boston Latin School and she would walk by marble busts of the Greek philosophers. That was the silver spoon she had in her mouth. But have any of us seen there being any uh, congruence between a love for philosophy and Greek philosophy and a heart that belongs to God? Josh has a line in his book on Augustine, which is superb, the book. We just brought it out on Warhorn Media. Read it. It's wonderful. But there's one statement in it that just, I told Josh, it makes me puke. And that's a statement where he says, and thus, and thus, the Greek philosophers and Augustine meet. Well, that's, that's what every philosopher says, you know. I've heard him say it my whole life. And if I hear it one more time, especially from a man I love like Josh, I'm just going to, you know what I'm saying. It's just like, can we please not baptize? I mean, maybe this is what was meant by baptism of the dead. <laughs> you know, Plato and Socrates bought to the font <laughs> by Josh Congress. Although he's a Baptist, I don't think he'd do it. It would have to be us Presbyterians that did that. You know. <sighs> Having a Baptist pastor in the front row is really, it's quite an experience. You would not believe how much the two of us talk to each other while I'm talking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's been such a delight. The near north side of Boston, Parabashi is her family. The Roman Catholic Church combined with Radcliffe, combined with Harvard. And married to the most skeptical, cynical man I have ever been a pastor to, Jimmy Cuffey. Who, as her husband, done her wrong. No sentimentality about this one. And that woman became the seedbed of generations of Christians in the city of Bloomington. That little woman. Now, let's go back to the Magi. <laughs> you do remember that's where we were, right? So, isn't this interesting? Out of the near north side, right by Old North Church, by the way, out of there comes a Parabashi, Roman Catholic, Radcliffe, Harvard, married to Jimmy Cuffey, that God uses endlessly to bring himself glory throughout the rest of her life. Now, doesn't this tell us that God's ways are not our ways? Doesn't this make much of scholarship? Now you say, well, no, not really. And I say, oh yeah, really. And you say, well, yeah, but you're always warning us against scholarship. I say, I'm not warning you against scholarship. I'm warning you against ideological stupidity, which calls itself scholarship. Christians are people with a book. Christians study. Christians, are you ready for this? Are you ready? Everybody, 
Mothers, hold your babies tight. Are you ready? Christians, read! Okay, I got it out of my system. And I'm not talking about social media, please. Christians study the stars. Christians, like Al Parker, study nature. Christians study people. And Christians see in people incontrovertible evidence for the glory of God. Christians look at marriage, and as Jody did so well at the wedding yesterday, they see this wonderful type of the bond between Christ and his church. Last night when Jody was preaching about marriage being this beautiful picture of the first marriage, which is Christ and his church, for the first time ever, I found myself having like kind of, sort of kind of like feminine feelings. I know most of you won't believe this about me, but for the first time ever, I wasn't afraid of it. I thought, well, that's beautiful, you know? Christians believe in truth. And so really it shouldn't be any surprise to us that God revealed himself and his son to scholars from the East. And that's how God works. And at this point, we're all warm and fuzzy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that wonderful that they studied, just like Rita, and that God answered those He reveals himself to, you remember what it says in Hebrews, those who, come on. Who said it? Yeah, say it out loud. I can't hear you. Okay, good. God reveals himself, promises to reveal himself to those who diligently seek him. Isn't that beautiful? That's just beautiful. And so we're all on board. It's, it's almost romantical. It's certainly sentimental, and it's certainly beautiful that these uncircumcised goyim from the East, these dignitaries from a foreign land, these wealthy dignitaries from a foreign land are worshiping at the feet of the Messiah of the Jews, right? Everybody on board. Nice story. Can we end it there? But the Jews didn't go and worship him. And that's the difference between preaching with faith and preaching to flatter you. Every preacher is going to make much out of the beauty of this scene. But can we please see that the Jews would not go? Can we please admit that entirely throughout the Gospels, we have the written record of God turning his back on his own people and bringing the sinners to Jesus, his son. And it was so constant that it was the scandal that surrounded Jesus. He hangs with sinners. What about us righteous ones? Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. 
Well, then what's the point of being born into a Presbyterian family and being baptized as an infant? There's are the promises. There's are the fathers. Theirs is the covenant. Well, <coughs> I can't make God choose me. And I say to you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a sophisticated argument. Poor little you. Why don't you go off and cry to your mommy? I mean, can you believe how often we accuse God of evil? You remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans? He says, well, his will is supreme. And do you remember what Paul says? Paul says, basically, how dare you say that? And what he's saying is, how dare you put the blame on God for the condition of your heart? Oh, seriously. God is God. Remember my mother saying that? God is God. And she was not complaining. Oh, no. And she said it in connection with the death of Danny, my my brother. God is God. (coughs) One of the applications of this account of the Magi is that you as a mother must recognize the sovereignty of God over your children. God is not beholden to you for marrying a Christian man. God is not beholden to you because you have family devotions. He's not beholden to you because you faithfully bring your children to youth group or because your parents are Christians also. God is not beholden to us. As my father used to say all the time, he said, God is no man's debtor. Or as my mother would say when I was in high school and so full of myself, I know it's hard to believe, but even more then than now. She'd say, Timothy, God owes you nothing. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, what a mama. And so, mothers, you must attend the means of grace with your children that you adore. You must pray for them. You must read scripture to them. You must change their diapers emotionally when they get themselves completely messed up in high school. You must put up with their solipsism. Oh. You don't know that word. Go home and look it up. Sweetie. It was very interesting. Who is at the end? Katie. What is her name? Ella. So I came, she's, you know, she's listening, but then all of a sudden I say solipsism and she's looking at me like that. She must be pretty intelligent. Ella. 
Ella, do you know what the word solipsism means? I know, you don't. Go home and look it up. That's what I always told my children. But typically I would say, well, a solipsist is always a narcissist. Do you know what narcissism is? Go home and look it up. Mothers, God has prior first claim on your children. And he does not owe you anything. And you do owe him obedience. And because of that, you read the Bible, you pray, you change their diapers, you nurse them. But you do it with full submission to the sovereignty of God. And you must not require of God the souls of your children. You must plead for them. You must be the importunate widow pleading for them. But you must not put your children in the place of God. And that means you must get your claws out of them. and plead with God for them to be moral agents who humble themselves before God. At this church, we are not interested in children who do the right thing. That can satisfy many Christians. That doesn't satisfy us here. Uh-uh. It doesn't mean I won't love you. <laughs> you know what I mean. I do love you. I do love you. You know that, right? You all know that. But I know there is not necessarily any necessary continuity between the love of my heart and the work of the Holy Spirit. And without the work of the Holy Spirit, no man or woman is born again. <clears throat> so at this time, I want to tell another story. You think about God saying to himself, I think that I am going to reveal myself to these foreign dignitaries who study the stars. And I think I'm going to send them to Jerusalem. I think I'm going to have them meet with Herod and with the Jewish religious. I think I'm going to have those people tell them what they want to know. And then I think they're going to go to Bethlehem and worship him, give him all that wealth. And I think I'm going to keep Herod and any of the religious leaders from going and worshiping Jesus. And you know what? When Herod tries to kill my son, I think that I'm going to have an angel go to Joseph and warn him. And I think I'll also warn the Magi so they don't go back and spill the beans. And you know what? I think it would be fitting for, for them to go down to the very place that I've forbidden my people to ever go for safety, <laughs> which is Egypt. <laughs> because remember, I said out of Egypt, I've called my son, you know. It's like, oh my goodness. 
What a plot. You know, think about it. God is not beholden to us. God makes promises about our children. God had made promises to all of his people in the Old Testament. And God himself is the one who through his prophets made the distinction between circumcised foreskins and circumcised hearts. Are you with me? Come on, say yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, buddy, okay. I'm, I'm pumped. So I want to tell you the story of Lucas Weeks. I know Lucas very well. And this last week has been excruciatingly painful for Lucas and the Bobites. Excruciating. Lucas feels it acutely. I've thought a lot about the similarities between Lucas and Adam Spadey this last week. Both of them were black labs. Both of them are objective, manly men. Both of them are at their best when they don't have any time to think about it beforehand. And their instincts just come out. Now, I tell you that because it's very easy to look at men like that who are not demonstrative and to think that they have no love. I'm convinced that they are the ones who really do have love. And the rest of us are just cheap talk. So Lucas loves. And if you don't know that, I'm telling you, and I'm in a position to know. If nothing else, I've gone to the hospital room a lot this last week. And I just think it's horribly gorgeous. (laughs) Just to see him there. Suffering. So anyhow, Lucas, a number of years ago, was a student in uh, international relations at GWU, George Washington in, in, in D.C. And he had lived with us for a couple of months, some years before, and our, our family loved him, although not that way yet with Hannah. And Lucas would call. He'd always call at dinner time, and I'd have to go out back on the deck. And I think it was like when it was cold. And at first, I didn't know what was wrong with Lucas, because Lucas was demanding attention, you know? And Lucas is a black lab. A black lab, you know, if he's a good black lab, they're a bad black lab, whatever that is. But Lucas is a good one. He doesn't demand attention. You've all noticed this, right? I mean, Lucas demanding attention? What's that? And as time went on, it became very clear to me that Lucas loved a number of students who were at GWU. And those he loved were not believers. 
And I realized that because of the beautiful love of Lucas Weeks, that his soul was in danger. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? That Lucas was prepared to judge God for not having his heart go in the direction that Lucas's heart went. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because that's the most normal thing in the world. And it is constant in the church that we demand that God work according to our affections and love. God is not what would I say? Our what would I say? He's not our... God doesn't live for our approval. God is not worried about our judgments about what he does and who he saves. And many of you are in the position of being bitter against God because his heart has not gone in the same direction as your heart goes. Many of you are in the position of judging God because he sent suffering to your life. And you go through your life cynical, rebellious, mouthy, chip on your shoulder. And you think you have the right to do that because of the suffering you've gone through. And so obviously God not only should be afraid of your judgments of him, but God obviously failed in sending suffering your way. You know that's not the way that Bob Kapowitz lived his life. You know that. Don't you dare complain about what you've suffered. Don't you dare. Honestly, you can write that over my tomb when I die. I am so sick of Christians acting as if they have a claim against God because of what they've suffered. Can you imagine if Jesus had lived like that? The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sins was upon him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. (laughs) All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, my dear people. Oh, my dear people. Can we be quiet? And can we worship this little one? Can we humble ourselves to trot along behind the Magi from the East, the scholars? Can we recognize God's sovereignty over our children and worship him more rather than less because of it? Can we have the humility to leave to him the secret things of God and to focus on the things revealed? Can we discipline our children hard precisely when we see no evidence of spiritual fruit in them (laughs) you with me on that one I mean anybody can discipline a godly child (laughs) you know (laughs) it's the ungodly children that you think you'll lose right Oh, I love you. I think I'm going to stop. What a beautiful story. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? It should give us real hope for the Indiana University. It should make us want to talk to scholars. I often have found that scholars at pagan universities who are liberals to the core are some of the people most open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I think of what's-his-face out at you-know-where. When you're on blood pressure medication, that's how you begin to talk. (laughs) What was his name? He came here and lectured at IU, and there were like 12 people there. Phil Johnson. Darwin on trial. You've heard of Darwin on trial? He came, he lectured, and nobody came. You know how Phil Johnson became a Christian? Does anybody know the story besides me? You know it? Ha! Anybody know it? Phil Johnson was a professor at Berkeley at the law school. (laughs) Just a pagan, normal, scholarly pagan. But for some reason, Phil Johnson had, am I saying that name right? Is it Phil Johnson? Okay. For some reason, Phil had uh, a child that went to vacation Bible school. And stupid Christians, they had a closing ceremony in something called vacation Bible school. And 
Phil was enough of a gentleman that he thought if he had his child in this vacation Bible school, that it would probably be good for him to go and show up at the closing ceremonies, you know? (laughs) Oh, that's sophisticated, you know? Do you know that he was a prominent, nationally known, maybe internationally, evidentialist? In other words, his specialty in law was evidence. And that's how Phil Johnson became a Christian, is through that closing ceremony of his child's vacation Bible school. And this is our community. We don't need to belligerate. What we need to do is to love. And you say, well, yeah, but I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, they're taking, away, they're taking our rights. They're taking our rights away. Tyranny, tyranny. Knock your socks off. It ain't going to change. <laughs> you know, I don't care what you think you're accomplishing. It ain't going to change. Remember Samuel Johnson said that all schemes of political improvement are laughable things. And he said that during the founding of the United States of America, and we can see how long that lasted. And if you don't like that, well, then go and read the history of Oliver Cromwell and see how long the Puritans lasted and how many of each other they killed. (laughs) Dirty little secret about the English Civil War. Listen. God has given us just a few years. We happen to be in Bloomington, and Mike Bowles, that means we must love them. I've always thought it's a miracle that Mike is willing to come into Bloomington at all, right, Mike? Oh, it's his hearing aids. Trust me, I know Mike. It's true. (laughs) It's true. Everybody west of here does not like Bloomington. They may have to shop here but they don't like us. All right, but we need to remember the Magi. We need to remember the wise men. We need to remember that God is no respecter of persons. We need to remember that it's often the most rebellious child in your home that will grow up to be the most godly. And we need to live under the authority and sovereignty of God. Do the work he's called us to. Pray for our children. Discipline our children. Love our children. Of course, but also never fail to make the distinction between those that God has revealed himself to and those who are religious without being Christian. And that's what the Jewish leaders were. And that's what a lot of the Jews were at the time of Christ. They were very religious, but they had no knowledge of God. And then here come the Magi. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Magi. We thank you for the wonderful gift of faith. Father, we thank you that you have, for many of us, that you have opened our eyes up to the glory of this despised and rejected of men, your Son, our Lord. Father, we pray that you will give us love for those who read and write and think and argue for a living. We pray that you will take many of us and put us in education so that we might reclaim truth for the kingdom of God. 
And Father, we pray that you will give us humble submission to you in the matter of the souls of our children. We pray this in Jesus' name.